Everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, March twelfth, two thousand and twenty-one, and this is episode six hundred fifty-nine of the podcast. We're going to talk to the director of the South by Southwest Film Festival, which is starting up next week in just a few days. Um, it is a virtual festival this year, not surprisingly. Um, hopefully, that won't be the case in two thousand twenty-two. But this year, the Film Festival will be running entirely online and all the, the components of the South by Southwest Festival, including music and, and tech, everything will be running online. All their panels, etc. will be virtual this year. But we have a conversation first coming up here with uh, the director, Janet Pearson. Uh, this is Janet's second time on the show, I, I, I think. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine. This is only her second visit, but Janet came on and we had a great conversation. And then we're going to go into a very special segment where my favorite co-host returns, Ileana Douglas, author, actor, film historian, podcaster extraordinaire, will join me for a conversation with the author Mark Harris and we'll talk about that in a moment but first let me go into this conversation about South by Southwest it's running from uh, March 16th through the 20th just five days this year as opposed to the normal nine and uh, that means uh, a Tuesday and so you can register go to South by Southwest and it's going to let you watch an enormous amount of content if you register for the festival and we are by the way I shouldn't mention going to have on the YouTube channel both of these conversations that are on this episode, as well as special segments that are only going to be on the YouTube channel from South by Southwest. So I'm just mentioning it now. But let's go first into this conversation. It's not too long with Janet. And then we'll be back to talk about Mark Harris's new book, Mike Nichols' Life. Both wearing black, so I only wear black. It's the only color I wear. Sometimes I put a little green on underneath, but basically it's, uh-huh. I'm, you know, it's... you gone goth on us, Janet. <laughs> you know, I was too. I was born too early for goth, but I totally would have yeah, been. I, a, I, I think I wasn't, but to me, it's like a beatnik thing. You know, I mean, that dates me, but that's kind of where it comes from. You know, most artists, and you even look at you look at clothing designers. What do they wear? You know what I mean? It's just simpler and. I've always been overweight, but it's, you know, chic and simpler and yeah, well, you never have to worry about matching and clothing and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the work is done. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank you for agreeing to do this. First of all, I'm so happy that we're connecting. Uh, it's been a little while and, um, you know, and I'm excited to hear about, uh, this new South by 2021. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to just ask you first, before we, we talk about that, uh, mm-hmm. find out how you are keeping up and how, on a personal note, you, I know probably uh, just you're, you're in Austin right now. Yeah, I live in Austin full time. I have full time. So I just I've lived here since 2004. I wanted to know how the last couple of weeks had gone since the uh, oh, kind of the events in Texas. I mean, not to go off on a political uh, direction necessarily, but I do. I hope it wasn't too horrific for you. It was hard. I mean, we we it was easier for us than a lot of other people. We lost power for 60 hours, and but we got to relocate for the last 24 to somebody else's house who did have power, so we could oh. keep working. Um, we never lost our water, water, so we were in much better. You know, we don't have extensive damage. We had a little bit of damage uh, to deal with, but you know, that's very different from people that are you know were really oh st- yeah struck it and we had some food in the house, et cetera. So we were much better off. I mean, it's, you know, I don't have a sense. I've been so busy with the prep for self by that in a sense, I don't really have a sense of the, you know, damage for so many people dealing with it. There was this incredible community support or kind of so many. And I know even like one of our favorite actresses, uh, directors that lives in town, Anna Margaret Holloman, it's just was like sure. really stepped up and has been leading, a, you know, rarely involved with a really big community effort, getting diapers and formula and for, for people, and she's still at it. So it was interesting to watch people run into that, but for South by, you know, we're like two weeks out and, and it's a completely new way of doing it and everything's online. And a lot of people lost power and water for an entire week and they're still trying to work forward, move forward. It was, it's complicated. It set us back for sure. Uh, well, we should remind people that a year ago, South by was launching literally, right? When everything was locked down. Well, we, our opening date was this 13th. Um, we were supposed to open on March 13th and, and that was our, our day. Uh, EDU starts a week before then. So, uh, and we were canceled by the city on, on March 6th. Okay. So. So yeah, we were in full swing. So much was happening. It was a great program. We loved it. The films were so good. There was incredible activity being planned. Yeah, you know, but some, some, I mean, some years, some years are a little more in love with stuff than other years. And and we just felt like last year was really going to connect. Like we just were. There was all sorts of stuff that was surprising that nobody was expecting that we really thought was going to be terrific. And there were incredible activations over the last several years. You know, a lot of companies have come and done these taken over city blocks and you know brought like experiential experiences and there were very cool ones in the works and you know so it was devastating on a grand scale and it was the first time for you know so many of people it was the first time that people realized this was serious and what it right yeah right we could see that uh, yeah it was a uh sure sign that oh this is uh this is yeah I, i think it was for me i was realizing oh and then you start thinking about down what what's going to be coming then you know, once if the South by is canceled, is canceled at this particular moment. I mean, it was it was it was a very very eye opening and a, a, you know woke woke us up um, to what we're we're heading toward. Because it was an interesting thing internally, you know, it was an interesting thing internally, like, which was worse. Yeah. You know, it's like what was going to be the damages to everybody who who you know were had planned on participating with us and already had invested in that experience, and you know the threat of the illness and. You know, yeah. in retrospect, thank God we were canceled because, you know, the sure. stakes oh. were so high. They were life and death, right? Oh, yeah. But, but there were just so many people who had so much at stake and they're oh. still, you know, reeling from that. Yeah, no, no, of course. I mean, there was no other way to go. But um, um, 
And I just want to say, even though this is on the cusp of knowing that both like in New York City, I'm a little north now, I moved a little north of the city, but how the IFC Center, I just got an email from with the Quad Cinema in New York City, these art houses, hopefully film forum, these are opening as we speak. And I get also earlier today, a terrible email that about, uh, you know, the Alamo Draft House declaring chapter 11. So not to, to yeah. weigh too much on bad news, but... Well, except it's chapter 11, you know, they're it's not going out 11. of business, they they're just organizing. I mean, this is an opportunity for them to get rid of some underperforming theaters. I mean, on a certain level, okay. you know, it's like a time. I mean, I think that's what chapter 11 is about. It's, it's you know, reconsolidating, you know, understanding what makes sense. So, you know, maybe they can break some leases that weren't working well anymore. You know, I'm not, mm. I don't work for them. I don't know. But it's just like, like, I know, you know, the Ritz was a fantastic theater during South by it was like very, it was super fun. And we had amazing screenings there, but um, and it will be missed, but you know, the company is still, they're still, I, I, I'm sure they will be exciting and great if people go out to the movies again, and you know, they're very, to, inventive, yeah. they're very good at what they do. Well, good. Thank you for what could be considered a positive spin on it. I do appreciate that. And I <laughs> I'm love all about, I, I, you know, when I was younger, I never saw the silver lining and everything, anything. And now I'm just all about fine. I'm like all about the silver linings. It's funny. It's something about being post 60, you know, right. just, really, don't be fooled. Part of this. Don't be fooled by the black wardrobe. She's got a <laughs> rainbow colors uh, in her attitude where it counts the most. And uh, well, uh, how could you not? You have to go into something as large and as expansive, uh, slightly scaled down in terms of the days, sort of. Uh, you know, it's a four day, right? Four to five days? Four five, five days? Five days. Five, five days. Thank you for correcting me. Five day event. Now, typically it's not that much longer because you're actually just repeating films mostly no, in those last no. days. No, that is incorrect. It's nine days full on. I mean, films may show one, films show anywhere from one to three to five times, but there's a lot of premieres happening all through up until the last minute. So even though there's repetition of some of the films that have started earlier, okay. no, it is, it, 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 there's a lot of new different stuff that happens all the way through. So it was a full on busy, really busy nine day event for us before. I stand. <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, well, listen, I had a Werner Herzog on no matter how much preparation I did, I was going to be corrected. You know, he suffers. He's there's nothing's going to slip by. Hey, why know? should you? Why should you know that, Manusha? You know, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, it's just this is what I spent all year on these nine days. So like, why yeah, should right. anyone else know at the Absolutely same time? You know? Yeah. And, 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 one, and one of the things, too, is that South by is so complicated that, you know, we internally they talk about it's like a blind man with an elephant, I think is a parable. But, you know, everybody has a really different experience there. So it's hard even internally for anybody to have a sense of the scope of the event. You know, it just it comes up internally all the time. Well, you know, I mean, uh, when I would go, I just learned because I would used to the first few years I went, I think I was there for almost everything. And then I started to see why uh, some people might say, well, if you know, the music people are coming, so get out of t-, that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, I was sometimes lost the last couple of days. I would come in early, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hang out in Austin, you know, with friends and be able to enjoy Austin a little bit before I immerse myself, which is all you can do during South by. And it's what I plan to do uh, in about 10 or 11 days when uh, on the 16th of March, it's the fourth today. So 12 days as we speak, March 16th through the 20th, a virtual South by Southwest could be the last one you do only virtually. 
let's let's cross our fingers mm-hmm. right um and uh how uh talk a little bit into, uh you know you don't have to go into great detail but talk a little bit about just like how you guys and your you and your team decided to approach structuring this so it was not just taking the old model and just throwing it on the internet but well, yeah i mean you know so what what south by southwest is so distinct you know there's really nothing else like it in the world they're great they're tech conferences they're great music festivals they're great film festivals but nobody else is as robust in all those areas plus you throw in comedy and you throw in the creative exhibitions industry and you know it's just the networking it's just there's really nothing else like it so and we are you know what people love about us is the, we're just a great live event you know it's all bringing all these people together all these strangers you get to like mix it up and form community and you know things spark and it's wonderful so what do you do when you can't do what you do best you know so then we just spent all year kind of trying to think about what would work and for us as for anybody who had to pivot this year um it's been challenging for every single person who's had to pivot every single entity but it had to work for everything so it had to work for the whole company. And we were also the first event that really um, did not go on last year. So we were coming right. from a deficit position. You know, there were a lot of complications with us canceling. And so we are still dealing with the repercussions of that, which are complicated. So it was just a group, a lot, you know, we lost a third of the staff right away from layoffs right after the cancellation. Um, and then it just became a process of different configurations within the company talking, experiencing other alternatives, you know, the world tech technologies becoming available and, you know, kind of figuring out what would work that would preserve, you know, what was most important about us. I know from the film perspective, you know, we love being able to premiere new work and and sort of, you know, give talent connection with audience and opportunity. You know, we love that. And we also love a, you know, place where people get to meet one another. So you want a place where, ideas can be shared and people are inspired and inspiring. And so how do you build that in? How do you, how do you have serendipity in an online environment? So it's just been a lot of conversations and discussions and, you know, there's a huge learning curve. We're having, what are the right tools? Whether the tools work for everyone? Um, it's been under a time constraint because we didn't know until kind of a short time ago that it was going to be hundred percent online. You know, we were always hopeful that we, who thought this would last for a year, right? So we were trying to plan for an in-person event. And then at a certain point, we thought, well, that's not possible. So then it's like, well, okay, you know, it's finding out what are the right technologies that are going to work. And then um, it's all happening in real time. But I think, but what's cool is that now that um, all the, like the, con- a lot of the, con- the films are, are in, I've certainly seen the films, but, you know, a lot of the conference sessions are pre-recorded uh, and even the music performances are pre-recorded even though there'll be a live way to interact during the event. And uh, the content's great. I mean, there's just great stuff. There's such good stuff. And it's so ex- exciting that so many people wanted to be a part of our event and went to a lot of trouble to bring really great content to us, you know, whether it's sessions, music, films, um, we're having film special events that are kind of, you know, because uh, uh, I mean, I'm rambling a little bit, but we can't, we, we couldn't do intros and Q and A's for all the films, which is a key part of a film festival. It's what people love. And, you know, the, the pre-recorded ones aren't working as well. They're, they're sort of nice for filmmakers egos, but they're not, they don't really getting strong. They're not getting big audiences and it's not real interaction. So um, the question is, you know, trying to figure out what could we do to kind of 
make sure people can engage with one another and engage with the work. So that's been interesting. And when you look at the schedule now, um, there's just, let me back up for a second. We're going to be premiering, uh, like there'll be five channels running content. So you just turn it on and you could just watch one channel all day. You could flip between the channels and there'll be a combination of sessions and music and film special events. So, so there'll be like 30 plus table read and a, you know, maybe a couple of live Q and A's and maybe some recorded ones and, and uh, dance party and the films will launch seven at a time uh, in two hour increments. Uh, and then once they launch, they're available on demand to watch. And so the music, sh- the music showcases will be scheduled in the calendar. And if you don't see them at the time they're scheduled, you miss it. They're not available on demand. So there's a lot of different ways that South by will be experienced and possible but it's a it captures that sense of all this different stuff all happening at the same time and you know how how much fun that is um you're speaking a lot about the music end of it are you finding that it helps to uh because of the nature of how south by is running this year that talking about the music helps to let people understand the the context all the context of the festival? Well, I, th- I mean, it's just always the fact that we're not purely a film festival. You know, right. it's, we, yeah. we've never been purely a film festival. So and, and it's the way we can oh, start as a music festival. Film was added right. secondly, you know, sure. Right. And so the way, I mean, we, we, you know, we have a lot of crossover with our comp with the conference uh, speakers as well. So we have a several, we always program that way. We always look for films that we know will play great to the conference crowd. And in this case, there are several of them this year where there are conference sessions that are also tied in with films we're showing. And so it's just, the reason I mentioned music is just because it's, it's the, it's the interplay of the different elements that distinguish right. us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there, so you said there, how many channels? Five? They're five. They're five, five. Channels. but then there's, there are five channels, but then there, and then there'll be, they've got 12 hours of programming that's repeated on the overnight for the different time zones. Uh-huh. So it's like from 10 till 10, there's fresh pro, pro programming all day long in the five channels, but then there are hundreds of, there's like, 200 sessions, panel picker sessions that will be available like around 10 o'clock on Tuesday. They're kind of on demand. And the films, even though they're on the channels, they're not running on the live channels. They're just in the schedule. They're in the schedule. And once they become available, they're available on demand. Once they premiered in a sense. and Once they've launched. Launched. Okay. Well, because you can, you can, you can, you can register for a film at Tuesday at 10 AM and not watch it till Thursday. You know, once 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 you once you once you once you've registered for a film, you can watch it whenever you want before the event ends. Gotcha, understood. Um, and so people can go to South by uh, SXSW South by Southwest dot com, register. I noticed there's a discount now as of March three twenty five. You can register for the festival. Correct. Yeah. I, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's not your end. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think. I think you know. In the event, it's actually online. Dot. It could be this year. We're calling it South by Southwest Online, and so. Right. Okay. So I'm sure you know you can get to it through sxsw.com, but also the, there's a the landing page of online.sxsw.com. Gotcha. But you okay? So once you get to the website, the South by mm-hmm. Online Festivals website, you register, 
Mm-hmm. And you're the, the, that that you're getting a pa- you get the whole caboodle. It sounds like you yeah, which which is amazing. I mean that that is actually one of the cool things this year that um you 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 have to have an online pass to engage with anything. There's no guest tickets. There's no single film tickets you can purchase. There's no guest passes of any kind. The only entree to the event is through an online pass. But once you have an online pass, it, you have access to everything, which is yeah. great. It's an amazing amount of. And the quality is is going to be very satisfying. You'll feel like you've been to South by Southwest. By the exactly. I so, so I just want to mention seventy some statistics, 75 features, mm-hmm. 57 of which are world premieres, uh, three international premieres, four North American premieres, one, one U.S. premiere, eight Texas premieres, um, 53 films, let me see which one is this first, first time, time directors, I think mm-hmm. first time directors. Thank you. 84 short films. I mean, five episodic, six episodic pilots, uh, 20 virtual cinema projects, 14 title design. Uh, I can't read my own handwriting half the time. That's my problem. I, I need somebody to uh, entries and 30 special events. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I guess I was concerned because I was thinking, you know, now you're talking about, okay, there might be a certain percentage, and I assume that of maybe filmmakers who are holding on maybe to their films, or in in the case, maybe they were, you offered them this year because they lost last year. I mean, that's a lot of time for somebody to wait to premiere their film or to place out by, but is, is these are not all films that were produced, obviously produced in the last 16 months or something, 17, 18 months, right? These are something, a lot of these films, people have been, filmmakers have been sitting on, producers have been sitting on, do you think? I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, we, we, we opened for submissions uh, in October. We, we opened for a very truncated short. It was only a three-week submission period. Usually we open in late June. Uh, and we have a rule uh, about how recent a film has to be. I mean, it can't be more than a year older than our okay. submission period. So that's still in place. We did invite all the 2020 films to resubmit to us um, gratis. And we, in our hearts, we would have shown all of them. But when we realized we had to do a smaller program just for people's attention spans, and it was a five-day event, we ended up with not only nine of the films from 2020, nine features from 2020 uh, that we invited to uh, be part of this program. And we created a section called the 2020 Spotlight. But otherwise, everything came in was a fresh new submission okay. um, and a fresh new and a fresh new choice. But now, you know, I don't know. Some people spend 10 years making films and some people make them in you know, a month. And and every year there are films that we've perhaps passed on the year before that they were rushing and they weren't quite done yeah. and that we've, we've accepted. So I can't vouch for exactly the, the end date on when these films were finished. A lot of the filmmakers are finishing them in real time right this second. Um but it's, it was a normal it was a normal period. And we, when we opened for submissions, we didn't know how many films there would be. We were kind of curious, but there was a great it was a great submission pool. We loved what we found. Um, and. Uh, yeah. And there probably I haven't counted up. Somebody else counted up that there were maybe seven films that are very specifically pandemic related in the program. I, I don't know if that's an accurate number, but it's something along those lines. And they're very obviously were made during on the pandemic, but they were all done really well you know they were, right, they, sure. they, they, we weren't we didn't we weren't looking to program them we just programmed them because they were good films um you probably don't have haven't had much bandwidth for what i'm about to ask about but i'm just curious as we kind of uh start to wind down 
Uh, did, have you had any conversations about 2022? Um, you know, it's so funny to me that people ask that. I, you know, it's, it's, I guess it makes sense because everybody asks that. I don't think that way. I'm a real day at a time person. You know what okay. I mean? I've never had a five-year plan. And to me, what's important is I think if there's anything that I bring that's valuable to, to any situation I'm in, it's actually being really present and thinking what's valid in the moment. So I'm really curious to see how South by Online is gonna work and what we're gonna learn from it and how that's gonna form any decisions going forward. That's a good point, right? This is a real sort of opportunity. Yeah, uh, and not just us. I mean, it's just everybody, you know, it's like what Toronto did, what New York Film Festival did, what, you know, I mean, what Sundance did was fantastic. You know, it's like, like everybody keeps setting the bar in a different place. So it's sort of like, there's what it feels like today, but things could be, you know, this will experience will add to the new, new factors. And then the world might change too. Like who, who could have predicted this a year ago? If you said, what's self by 2021 going to be like, I'd be like, we were sitting home in a pandemic for a year. Who knew that, you know? So that's why I don't even bother. It's kind of like, just hopefully you learn and you're always kind of learning and improving from everything. Uh, again, South by Southwest will be um, running from March 16th through, through the 20th, those five days. Um, and I'll have the links. I'll have everything uh, ready to go in a day or two when I post this conversation. I'll look forward to, uh, I already booked Udo Kier, so, you know, uh, Udo Kier. So, oh, so, God, he's so good. I mean, so, I, we didn't we didn't talk about any of the films, which I actually don't like actually singling out films, except I love the program. I just, right. there are so many good films. He gives he gives a performance of his lifetime. It's wonderful. He, you he, know? Yeah, it's, it's, he's gone. He's kind of doing what they accuse Nicolas Cage of doing often, which is kind of running away, like just going, you know, it's like, let them, see what they do, you know, and he really, uh, it's a very, it's a very unusual performance, but he, it's called Swan Song, it just so happens, I know. I don't, I also, I was thinking, there's just so many films, I mean, we can mention the, the, uh, the Demi Lovato Dancing with the Devil is the opening night film, mm -hmm. uh, the, the centerpiece is Tom Petty, Somewhere You Feel Free, those are his lyrics, uh, Closing Night, Alone Together. Mm -hmm. They're great. I mean, they're all oh. so strong. I mean, I love this program. And so I don't know how to talk about it, but they, those three, and funny, we didn't intentionally set them all up to be music films, but that's what emerged uh, for this year. And in terms of artists and artists dealing at this time and creating and, and um, they're wonderful. Um, thanks so much. I think, I think, I guess I think I, I, I asked you everything that was on my mind. <laughs> Did I miss anything? <laughs> I just, you know, and now at this point, I used to say during the live event, you know, whenever I introduce a film, I always thank the audience and, and say, you know, this is the whole point of it. This is when it comes alive. All these filmmakers create this work, but it comes alive when they're seen by you. And I right. still feel that way in this online experience. And we're really trying to encourage all the viewers to when they've seen work, like talk to the filmmakers about it. Like you go to their film event page and chat to them or use social media to chat to them. It's because the filmmakers are really, are, yeah. They're missing that live experience. You know, of it's a course. filmmaker usually stand in the back of a room and you can feel if it's working or not. And nobody's getting that experience right now, um, you know, a little bit in drive-ins, but it's still not the same. And so we just, we're encouraging, we want, we hope people come and watch the stuff because the films are great. And then we hope they make noise about it, both to the filmmakers and to each other, to the rest of the audience, because that's, that's the whole point of how this works. That's what, if, that's why people love film, going to film festivals. Mm -hmm. And uh Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, so 
connect with the filmmakers uh, there are very available in almost any case mm-hmm. um and I'm, I will say from a personal level, I'll miss you. You're a, a really one of the best moderators of Q&As for like somebody runs a festival that I know. I miss seeing that this wow. year. Yeah, you do right. a great job. Your enthusiasm comes across every time. You're very great in front of the audience. Uh, you know, I don't, get, I don't say that about every executive director of a film festival, but I could say well, that about, if I could throw you a compliment. That, yeah, no, I'll, I'll take it. That's actually very kind of here. We are certainly for the registrants, for the people that are engaging with South by Southwest, there are going to be a number of different ways for people hopefully to gather. So, you know, there'll be there'll be a fee, film meetup that's event-wide every day at a different time. So anybody okay. wants to talk about like, what'd you see? What'd you like? There'll be some kind of Zoom every day people will be part of. There'll be a, the, an AMA with chat for the film staff every day that people can ask questions. And, I'll, you know, that's definitely, I'll be, I'll be there doing that. And, you know, we might be using some other platforms as well anywhere people are talking these days and um, you know, there'll be some filmmaker to filmmaker meetups. So, you know, it's certainly where um, we had an orientation a couple of days ago where we had like 150 filmmakers at noon and another 120 at six. And it was, it was really great. I'd never been on a zoom that was that uh, busy, but all the filmmakers brought such great energy and they loved meeting each other. They all introduced each other and it was exciting. And everybody could just feel that like, excitement to connect and well you should definitely be carrying on some of these successful components into the future regardless of where the things go like absolutely makes sense yeah sure 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 All right. go back to work i guess uh i'll also <laughs> <laughs> go before i sleep for sure i appreciate so. again i do appreciate making the time it was very nice that you got back so quick and we were able to pull this off so quickly and easily my pleasure thank you for right. asking thank you all right talk to you again Okay. Bye-bye. Or see you online. (laughs) Okay. This is Mark's first time on the show. He's written this outstanding biography about Mike Nichols, one of the most protean creative forces in American entertainment history, a life of dazzling highs and vertiginous plunges, some of the worst largely unknown until now by the acclaimed author Mark Harris, who's written uh, pictures that a revolution in five came back. I'm telling you, this is uh, one of my top segments I feel like I've done in a long time. I I just really thought Mark was a terrific guest, and, and having Ilion on is, is terrific. We've already booked another segment together coming up in a, a few weeks with another yet another author. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy this conversation coming up about this book, about the life and career of uh, none other than Mike Nichols. And this is not the first time I've done a segment on Mike Nichols, but I'm, I I feel like now I've gone to school between the <laughs> the two episodes I've done of this fantastic one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, but here, here on his first uh, occasion to be on Film Wax is uh, author Mark Harris and uh, my co-host Ilya Douglas, only here on Film Wax Radio.
start and then just see how it goes? Start. <laughs> okay. Well, Hi. Hi, Adam. How are you? Pouring my, my booze into my mouth for my tea. <laughs> starting off on it. That old chestnut. <laughs> right. Yeah. Enjoy your tea. Can't, you can't um, read a good book without a nice cup of tea. I know. I just happen to have this one. Oh. Any good? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Now, uh, Adam, I want to ask you a question. Uh-oh. First, a great, co- great cover, right? The yeah. simplicity. It is. Really eye-catching. Um. Did you now I dog ear my books. Do you look at that? <laughs> yeah. I I know purists, I know we shouldn't do it probably ruins the value of the book. But um, what is the value of a book? I tend to dog ear things, you know, I want to recall. Did you have a favorite chapter? Um well, typically, you know, my favorite chapter will be around my favorite films and any anecdotes, but I think I know so much about... Actually, I, I really love the chapters around, like, Catch-22. I know it's a, it was considered a flop at the time or a failure by yeah. whatever standards, of course. Yeah. Then, you know, latter years, of course, people come back to it and look at it through a different prism of time. And, you know, time can be generous. But just the cast, you know, those are all my... I think my favorite anecdote in the film has to do with Robert De Niro and the film Bo- the film that never happened happened Bogart oh, yeah. left here. Right. I thought that was pretty relevatory because you know I'd always heard that De Niro got fired but he I, he had never commented on it. And I thought it was very poignant. <laughs> it was kind of it was it was sad. I felt sorry for him. What who's But now that you bring up like who, who like would have seen any work of Robert De Niro's and thought he'd be good in a Neil Simon comic. You know, I know not putting putting... a hot actor at the time, but he doesn't belong in Neil Simon. Plus the idea that it was based on, on Dustin Hoffman's life. And didn't he have anything to say? Like, why didn't Dustin Hoffman play the part? Since it was kind of, you know, that's what you get from the book and from the graduate that it was based on his life. And then when Richard Dreyfus took over, obviously he adapted, re- reworked into Goodbye Girl, the Goodbye Girl. Yeah, yeah. completely uh, different film. <laughs> and, uh, but maybe somebody should redo uh, Bogart Slept Here <laughs> with, with an older Robert De Niro. I would see that. Um <laughs> I, I love that part. Of course, I loved all the out-of-town stories with Neil Simon. I love Neil Simon. I'm just yeah. a Neil Simon fanatic. Uh, I, I thought... You ever you would Neil Simon play? Do I have You're, a favorite? No. Did you ever actually, did you ever do anything on stage of his? Only in, um, only in, in uh, acting school. Only right. scenes right. in acting school. Um Boy, his but his stuff is, uh, you know, terrific. Um, the Odd Couple, classic, Barefoot in the Park. Got to bring up uh, Odd Couple so I can do my Walter Matthau. The uh, that came as that I enjoyed reading about that too. Walter Matthau. I didn't know what a you know son of a. So yeah, that was because you know we love him so much. 
that was rough. Um, but um, there's a lot of Buck Henry in the early part of the film. That was, you know, a book that was very well, interesting. That was that the graduate was a real partnership. It was a real partnership as, yeah. Yeah. As was Catch-22 and then it kind of fell apart. And it's, you know, I guess the movie that I would be most interested in seeing in its uncut form would be Heartburn because I love Heartburn, even though it feels kind of mangled. Uh, Man, I would have, I'd love to see the original. I'd love to see Mandy Patinkin. I'd love to see anything. Mandy Patinkin was the original, um, was originally cast in in the male lead and then. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't working. That that's that was also like how he navigated firing as many huge stars as he had to do. You yeah, know, that's that is got to be quite a a thing to a task. Yes, to and uh, the story of Robert De Niro or Mandy Patinkin or any number of other people that he had to fire because they just weren't working. We had called each other throughout the reading. We were both uh, the George C. Scott sections to her. Yeah. Wow. Uh, right. And just how many, I just want to say you also fired Gene Hackman, just for the record. But. Uh, yeah. And then rehired him years later. Rehired him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for wow. the birdcage. Uh, uh, yeah. You. Um, yeah. He worked with, you know, a number of people who struggled with the, uh, and addictions that you know George C. Scott being notorious you know very you know but they come across so also so broken you have nothing but sympathy for these guys like George C. Scott is obviously very you know haunted or I know yeah well I'm sort of curious what that was my um there must be grandfather worked with him a couple times they did the crucible um oh my gosh yeah, they did the Crucible, and then years later they did uh, Changeling, a horror movie. Right, so. and the only reason he took it is because of uh, um, wanting to work with George C. Scott. But there was a very interesting anecdote in the movie when they're doing Day of the Dolphin, and that's what ended the relationship with Buck Henry. Not literally, but they're right. working. Yeah. On screen relationship, but now I want to go see. I want to see that again. But that was it. That was a great, great chapter. Speaking of which, we could I, add that the 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 that the Alamo Draft House chain, oh. as you mentioned earlier, has filed for Chapter Eleven, which is very tragic. I yeah, it's really sad. I was um, we were talking about this before. I, you know, they sponsored a large chunk of my book tour. Yeah. Going to Alamos throughout the country, and we would show Ghost World, and then do a Q and A, and then sell the book. And it was a fantastic way to be able to sell the book. Um, and and again, the idea of the theater that was so great was they had all these first run movies, but then they had a couple screen- set aside rooms. Yeah, right. they set aside rooms right during the week, especially when yeah you know, maybe they'd and- have to show. And each Alamo was independently owned. So I recall going to each different one and, and, you know, they could decorate the lobby. So, you know, one lobby may have had Barbarella and 
you know, all of that. Another one would have had. Yeah, they were uh, franchised. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they had. It was very, it, it, you know, whatever the people were working there, you know, they kind of created their own movie theater. So I, it was a great, you know, it was a great idea. And the one in Texas, of course, was the one I probably had been to the most, having been there through at South by Southwest. Right. Well, I, I think he opened the Tim League, who was the founder. I think he opened the first Alamo might have been in even in Houston. I could be wrong. And then and then moved also then opened them in Austin. And that's, of course, where I would see a lot of my my South by Southwest films. I miss, you know, I was at the one in Houston and in Austin, the one in Denver, which was a very big one. We showed Grace in My Heart there. I was there a few times. And then there was I believe there was one in um, San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they came to Brooklyn towards, you know, like five years ago. Exactly. Um, That's I, I would I, I I enjoyed many great visits there. Plus, I remember my favorite memory was when I, at the one in Denver, I was with Allison Anders, and you know it was one of those things like where we gotten off the plane and hadn't eaten dinner, and then we and then this idea that we could have dinner, and I mm-hmm. think we had you know, like cake and ice cream and all of that. Hi, Mark. Right on time. Right on time. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. My, you didn't have time um, to clean up your your desk. <laughs> You're seeing it in the full horror. Um, <laughs> uh, do you want me to put uh, headphones in? Is that better for echo, or does it matter to you guys? I'm not hearing any echo. I'm. I, I mean, it sounds pretty good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I have you a were... mic, but it's just for show because I I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how to hook it up yet. We're working on it. We're, We're all working. a work in progress here. I have one, but I dropped it on the floor, and now it's just ornamental. <laughs> well, we were we're working on a. Um, I, I'm not saying working on. We were doing an intro of sorts before you got on. So we were yes. talking about our our thoughts about the book. We were talking about our interactions with with Mike Nichols. Yeah, uh, that's fun. So we're we but we both really, you know, got it. Love the book. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I love Thank it. You. I, just, I said mine's. I'm a. I do dog ear. Like I do dog ear the book. I'm one. I, of I'm fine with that. Rough it up. It doesn't <laughs> bother me. <laughs> well, I like going to the. You know, my favorite. Uh, you know, and then the the I love all his notes and spam a lot, of course. The <laughs> you know, and, and it, it, later in his life, he would do those. Uh, you know, show the graduate. I, that's what I was talking about at the top. With he did one with Buck Henry, and he, you know, you get all these thoughtful. I mean, he had spend the whole time in the audience writing down everything he said. You know, because it's so helpful and wise in terms of comedy. Yeah, and very quotable too. Oh, just I'm, I'm, I was saying at the when I the the first time I met him, he said something that was very Mike Nichols. He asked me, he said, "Have you ever read De Tocqueville?" <laughs> it sounded like something that was off the album or something. Right. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're trying to kind of get to what might be the lesson in there. What might be the kernel that he's trying to teach you know that he's trying to enlighten you about you know in, in the, he had the comedy else. stuff 
I, I think so much of it is for him was um, keep it real. You know, like a, a lot of what he says boils down to it's the first thing that starts the book where he says that it's a director's job to make you to think like, what is this really like? And what happens next? And I think those were his sort of comedy rules too. Like give, what is it really like? Give audiences something they can recognize and what happens next? Keep it moving. Go like, know when you're done with one beat, you know, that's, that's always the thing when I, whenever I was doing a movie, every time we do a take, you know, there, I would always say, well, you know what Mike Nichols said when, as soon as you get a good take, do it faster. (laughs) that way i always remember that was like a mike nichols you cannot go wrong with doing it faster that's interesting and he would what what he learned in improv with elaine clearly he took so much i mean that period to have that period of time not a strategy just that's how you know his he just fell into this relationship with elaine may had that incredible period of time as a you know as this duo and clearly there could have been no better for for mike nichols no better schooling for how to make movies and 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 do theater uh direct theater than than that period of time for him yeah I i think that's completely right um and it was something that i didn't realize when i um started working on the book i kind of thought his whole comedy improv career with elaine may was an interesting sort of uh appetizer to a completely different main course career and it really wasn't until i got into research um that i started to understand how much he invented himself as a director and also how much of his understanding of what actors do was built into those first years with with Elaine. Let me just ask, just uh, to take one baby step back, and then I'd like to hop right back into Mike's Mike's career. But for from your from your experience, um, did you decide to do this book as a result of the chapter on the graduate in the pictures at a revolution, which is an earlier book of yours? Was it your relationship with Tony, your husband, uh, uh, and of course that relationship, and or what was the instigating or catalyst for this book? Well, um, no, I did. The, the, the order of things was I first met Mike through Tony, probably in 2000 or 2001, which is right at the beginning of when Mike and Tony started working together on the HBO angels in America. Um, And, and, you know, angels was long and it took a long time to get done. and, And then it took a long time to, edit into air so that was like three years probably of, of getting to know mike and then soon after that i interviewed him uh for my first book which was largely about the making of the graduate but no then i thought i was i was done writing about mike and his movies and i kind of settled into knowing him i didn't uh get the idea to um do the book until after he passed away which was in december of 2014 and even then it was my publisher's idea, not mine. I did not have in mind ever to do a biography because that's not really the kind of book that I've written before. So, so I I was kind of as surprised as anyone that uh, this idea came up. But once it did, I realized I really wanted to do it. The uh, I was you know the I, was, I suppose the most complimentary thing I could say is I hated the book to end, you know because. 
it represents my whole life of movie going. You know, I remember seeing The Graduate the first time it played on TV and it was all cut up. And then I'd like to add that. They, I, sorry, I'm so sorry. I would like, just want to add for people watching. We happen to all be, I believe, the same, essentially the, close in age. So we have the same point of references, Mark and I, especially. I mean, we're a little older and we have the, we're born just weeks apart, I believe. But go ahead, Eliana. I, I, I apologize. We have the same mother. I just want to say, go ahead. But, uh, but, it, it, you know, and then his, through his, through, you know, watching the graph, trying to find the grad, uh, you know, Catch-22 on television, through his career, through watching Spam-A-Lot, through Birdcage, like his whole trajectory of his life, the ups and downs. And it, so it represented for me a kind of a nostalgia of what a large chunk of of, a, of films that he represents and a type of filmmaker, you know, intelligent, smart, witty, you know, that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it was so strange for me to work on the book because it, you know, the stuff that I was researching spans this time from way before I was born. Um, you know, the, Mike was born in 1931 and and to, to things that like, I had read about, but but had never, that were still before I was born, like, you know, New York nightclub culture in the late 1950s to, you know, I remember the first Mike Nichols movie I saw, which was The Day of the Dolphin when I was a kid, um, which was the first remotely suitable for kids movie that, that uh, Mike ever made, and probably one of the few. And then you get into years when, I was a, uh, an editor at a magazine and, and like assigning stories on the movies that Mike made. And then to the years when I knew Mike, it was just a phenomenally strange, like even when I was working on the book, I thought, what happens? What's going to happen when I get to the Angels in America chapter? Am I supposed to mention myself or not? And, <laughs> and then I thought, nah, you know, I will, I will, uh, I'll mention myself at the end. <laughs> People don't need to see it in the middle of the book. Yeah. Well, did you have a favorite part of writing? Was there a, a particular part of the book that was you felt the most free or uh, <laughs> unburdened or whatever you want to say? I don't think I have ever felt free or unburdened in my life about writing. <laughs> okay. Like, not on a single day. But um, I think, honestly, the... Uh, Writing about Mike and Elaine May was a really exhilarating thing for me. Um, you know, Mike and Elaine May and the early the early years of also of Mike's directing. I mean, it was it was a really interesting challenge to write about Mike directing Broadway shows that I couldn't see, where I had to try to kind of reconstruct what was special about them. That I mean, that was challenging, but also just the years that Mike and Elaine worked together were the years in which Mike became Mike, like the years when he figured out what acting was, the years when he figured out what directing was, all of the great ways in which Mike worked with women over the decades, which is something that really set him apart from a lot of his kind of generational contemporaries. I think all of that was set up in those Elaine years. So, so, and also they were the years when it, where he got famous and it's always fun and interesting to write about someone going from not famous to famous and and so i think probably 
those were the scariest and most fun chapters to write because I knew the more I worked on them, the more I knew that I was setting up the whole rest of his story in ways that I never anticipated Mike and Elaine would connect to. When did you hit upon the idea that, because it's almost the spine of the book, losing his hair becomes part of his whole facade. And, you know, that's always an aside when you think about Mike Nichols, but in your book, it's front and center. And it's, it's, it's what created him in the, in the beginning, you know? Um, one of the first people I interviewed was Mike's brother, um, Robert, his, his younger brother, who's, who's a, a doctor um, and a very like erudite, lovely, thoughtful man. And, and obviously he was essential to giving me a picture of Mike's childhood because who else would? And I was wondering, even early in the process of the book, how much of a big deal the hair thing was going to be. And so I asked... Um, Mike's brother about it and he said just really flatly it, it was the defining event of his childhood um, just kind of factually and I thought well okay I, I can't um, uh, I can't not look at that I mean when somebody who's that close to you says it was the defining event of someone's childhood that also kind of means that your adulthood was shaped by it and so you know I didn't want to come up with a kind of one theory, you know, Mike lost his hair when he was a little boy, and therefore he is this person. But um, it came up over and over and over again in in different contexts. I mean, talking about it with people he was directing was a way that Mike had of kind of strategically opening himself up to actors and getting them to open up. But it was also like when it was used against him, um, something that ended at least one really important professional relationship. So, so it, it felt like it really mattered. Um, And, and I didn't want to dodge anything that mattered. You know, the other thing that I kept getting stuck on was, was George Siegel um, saying uh, to me that, um, Mike once said to him, it takes me three hours to become Mike Nichols every day. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, that, that's such an overwhelming thing when you mean it literally. Like if you feel that you literally have to compose this person, Mike Nichols, which is by the way, a name he chose for himself, um, you know, in order to go out and face the world, that's just huge. And yeah. his hair, of course, was a big part of that. There's a running theme. The last person Ileana and I talked to was an author of a book about Cary Grant, who also came up with a kind of a persona persona of who Cary Grant, Archie Leach, you know, there was any referred to himself as almost in a split personality kind of way or as a as Cary Grant as a separate almost entity you know I I thought you were about to tell me that Cary Grant was bald from the age of four and you were about to completely blow my mind (laughs) we should say that uh, Mike the the baldness came as a result of Eliana, dare we say that being vaccinated? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say it, yeah. or because uh, it'll scare people. But, you know, uh, well, one thing I'll say is we think that's what it was. Okay. I mean, it, it. You know, we think that's what it was because that's what Mike's father, who was a doctor, 
told him it could have been alopecia. It could have been something like, we don't know. Um, But yes, they they think it was a a reaction to a a whooping cough vaccination. That's what Mike was always told. And, and um, you know, vaccines obviously in 1935 were not necessarily what they are now. Yes. The, the other thing that surprised me in the book was his capacity uh, to be mean and, and cruel and cutting, you know, um, did that surprise you or had you seen some of that or it's always hard, you know, your idols, you want them to be perfect. Um, I had not seen any of it. Um, uh, Tony had a little bit, not ever directed at him, but but he saw it once uh, during the audition process for Angels in America uh, in a story that I, I put in the book. But I certainly knew about it because Mike himself had talked about it very extensively and very forthcomingly. When we were talking about The Graduate, he, he tells a story about how, you know, it was a very long shoot. It was a very hard shoot. Uh, Mike had a sort of singular vision of what he wanted and uh, he was alternately supportive of Dustin Hoffman and rough on him. Um, And very late in the shoot, uh, he tells a story about how he and the crew were crossing Sunset Boulevard to try to steal a little street footage. Um, And uh, he heard heard, uh, the cinematographer, Robert Surtees, say to his crew, it's all right, it'll be over soon. And, and he said in that moment, um, he, he realized how, how rough he had uh, been. And he, he told the story about a couple of different cinematographers, um, but, but it, there was one story where he, he, said, he said to the cinematographer, I'll apologize to all of them. And the, the cinematographer said, oh, no, 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 it's too late for that. Um, and... Uh, as Mike told his own life story, a really important part of his narrative was his journey away from being that nasty guy um, uh, to, to not doing that. I mean, years later, he said, you know, one thing I realized was that if, if you're the director, you have absolute power and it's not fair for you to abuse people uh, who can't answer back to you. Um, but it was something he struggled with uh you know he would he would get impatient he would get frustrated and and um uh you know even into the 80s uh he could be he could be really rough on people he was really rough on the cinematographer uh for um angels in america stephen goldblatt um who almost quit and and then kind of uh pushed back uh a little bit and from then on they had a fine relationship so he did learn as he got older to keep it under control yeah some people Diane might have had a sorry Diana oh no I was just gonna say you know coming from you know he Elaine May and and Mike Nichols just even being in their presence you know one is reluctant to even speak you know because they're so smart and so witty and and so stylish I could see how that could be a very intimidating experience working with Mike Nichols. Well, the flip side of it is he was so practiced and skilled and, and masterful at putting you at ease. I mean, especially I think after he married 
uh, Diane, and it, it sort of was one of those things where one plus one equals more than two. You know, they were they, they were suddenly this power couple, and and you know he was extraordinarily gracious about knowing how to put people at ease and and knowing how to relax them. And you hear story after story from actor about how he was able to draw this specific thing out of them and get them to open up. I mean, especially late in his career, you know, when he directed um, Death of a Salesman on Broadway when he was over 80. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman version, yeah. Right, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and Andrew Garfield was in it. And, right. and they all talked about how, how what was most important to Mike was making that family, that group of actors who were going to play the Loman family feel like a family so that they felt like they were in it together. And, and he, I think he really did that. He, he went out of his way to try to, to create uh, a, a synergy and, and that kind of family environment. He, and he, you know, he worked with a lot of very, very powerful actors early on, especially uh, as well, where he, he, one method he had early on was having them lay down head to head and run through the entire script. Yeah. That was really like, that's amazing. On stage. That was a big thing that he did. Uh, He did it on um, uh, this play, the prisoner of second Avenue and Neil Simon play with, with Peter Falk and Lee Grant. And he did it on this apparently extraordinary production of uncle Vanya, which starred everyone from Julie Christie to George C. Scott to Lillian Gish. Um, I, I mean, it, one thing that blows my mind about uh, Mike Nichols is he was so famous and so successful for so long that the span of actresses he works works with, it, it literally goes from Lillian Gish to Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. I mean, that's, that's you, you have a century of, of, of acting talent in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He fired like actors at the level that most people would die to cast, you know, like. Uh, I, I but, love the story where uh, Gene Hackman is, he yeah. fired Gene Hackman on The Graduate and years later when they're doing The Birdcage, Gene Hackman is still afraid that he's going to fire him. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. incredible. I think um, casting was so important to Mike. He felt it was so important that when yeah. he fired someone, I think he felt that he had failed like, you know, but if he couldn't see you, if he couldn't feel you in the part, whether it was Gene Hackman in the graduate or, or Robert De Niro on this, this movie that that eventually Mike abandoned or um, uh, Mandy Patinkin on heartburn. I, I think, I think it was mortifying in a way for him to fire someone because it, it was his own mistake and yet, right. I think he could also hear Elaine May, who was considerably less emotional and sentimental about this, saying in his ear something that she said, which was, if an actor isn't good by the fifth day, fire them. They never get better. Yes. <laughs> I know in the case, because I was friends with John Hurd, and I, he was devastated. Mm. I mean, even later in his life. Dreamers, right? Dreamers, right. He said to me, I was the guy that Mike Nichols fired before we went to Broadway. Yeah, that was a huge, uh, painful decision, especially because I think um, by all accounts, you know, John Hurd was, 
was great in in streamers um but uh one thing that was really complicated about that play was i think mike got really frustrated by the pacing i mean he really wanted it to move a certain way and john hurd who was quite young then was in a phase of his career when according to the other actors you know it if he if he couldn't feel it he wouldn't say it uh, including on stage in the middle of a performance so there were a lot of like pauses while john heard got to the place where he was okay to say the line and i think that probably made mike crazy his eyes were rolling know, the back of his head yeah faster faster right. you know michael o'keefe uh who was an understudy uh on that production was very very young said that he remembers mike nichols standing in the back of the long wharf theater in new haven i i won't curse but he he was just saying say it say it say it you can't, yeah, and you can curse on this show, so don't worry. Uh, but on the flip side of, of of that part, you know, making cutting actors or firing them for casting purposes, for artistic purposes. On the flip side of that, he also uh, stuck out some very difficult situations with actors who are struggling with internal demons, like George C. Scott, like Art Carney, like um, who am I leaving out? Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Um, So, you know, he stuck with those people and, um, you know, they would disappear sometimes for days at a time, like, because they were so, uh, you know, uh, struggling so much. Yeah, I think Mike had a lot of sympathy for um, substance abuse, even even when you get to Working Girl and and Melanie Griffith, who's had problems with, you know, cocaine and alcohol on that movie are quite public so that's not like telling tales out of school or anything and he was really frustrated with her and he was annoyed with her but as much as he was saying to her you're not going to ruin my movie he was also saying like don't you don't you understand this is your chance like do you know what this part can do for you do you know how great you can be in this part um but I think he really thought that people uh, with substance abuse problems who were actors, um, that it was really connected to their fear and to the sensitivity that they needed to have to, to go on stage every night. So, so uh, the, I mean, Mike could be tough. He, he would say, you know, you're not going to ruin this production, but, but, he was also really, he was sympathetic about that. He was never nasty about it. I love this section. Um, I mean, because so much has been written, of course, about The Graduate. And I love his... A lot by Mark himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. the uh, And I like the um, concentration on Catch-22, which is kind of a mess, but it's so amazing. I That was a movie... Early on, like in high school, I discovered it. And again, it took years to see the actual film. I was seeing chopped up versions on television. But there, every actor in the universe is in the film. And uh, the stories with Orson Welles, I thought, were particularly poignant. In the, in the I, That's a movie that I don't think I'd seen until I started working on the book. I'd somehow always missed it. And yeah, and yeah I, I knew that I wanted to write a lot about it and, and yeah. to um, learn as much about it as I could because it's his first failure. And it, it feels like, and, and failure, I mean, I'll say, I think there are really interesting, cool things about Catch-22. And I think Mike did too, but financially and critically, it, it was a failure. Um, and 
it's on a criterion collection now so you know it's it's had a bit of a oh yeah yeah i mean definitely and it's completely worth seeing um but i i read everything i could about the making of that movie and talked to everyone i could and one thing was reading about it it was shot in 1968 and 69 it really takes you back to this era when journalists were allowed to go on the set of a movie for a long time not just like a perfect publicist controlled 90 minute visit um but days and days where you got to see people fight with each other and go crazy and lose their minds and got to see shots go wrong and and so some really good journalists went to cover Catch-22, including Nora Ephron for the New York Times Magazine, with whom Mike later worked and, and became friends. And so the stories, there was just a great amount of stuff to draw on um, about, uh, about the movie. And it probably ultimately worked to um, the, the movie's disadvantage, because by the time it finally came out, so much had been written about it that that like every single review talked about it in the context of this kind of two and a half year folly Mike's come up in the, the, you know, it, it was really, it, it was, it, it in a way like died of its own publicity, which, you know, happens oh, now sometimes. Right. Well, that and MASH came out a couple months before, which right. was a huge, right. huge success and kind of, uh, it was sort of that same syndrome as, uh, Dr. Strangelove and uh... Failsafe, yeah. Failsafe, yeah. Um, uh, but I love the fact that when when Mike goes to see MASH and he, he realizes instantly that his movie is doomed, um, yeah. it, his reaction isn't just like, it, right, oh jealousy. no, my movie's doomed. Right, or it's, jealousy. Oh, I wish I'd made that movie. Like, this is the movie I, I wanted to make and why didn't I make yeah. it? You know, he was always very... Um, he didn't get defensive about work that that sort of outcompeted him or or about his own failures. He 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 was sort of interested in in how it happened. And one of the big things, I mean, two big things that came out of the failure of Catch Twenty Two was one, he sort of was exhilarated to realize he would survive, that he could have a big public failure and it wouldn't literally kill him and it wouldn't end his career. And he came up, the other thing was he came up with this pattern, this idea for how to react to failure, which was when you have a big thing that's a disaster, go and do something small that means something to you that you have no commercial expectations for. Mm. And, and in this case, that was carnal knowledge, which obviously turned out to be a big success. But over and over and over again, you see him react to a failure by making that decision i mean he does streamers uh after he's had three movie flops in a row and has kind of been temporarily exiled or at least self-exiled director's jail yeah you know again the name of the book here is called mike nichols a life by mark harris just want to remind people it's available wherever books are sold um mark i wanted to ask you a little bit about his relationship with neil simon and and they you know eventually sort of had a kind of a you know a falling out and uh i saw both the broadway version of Biloxi blues and the film version and they're so 
I mean, they're night and day from each other. And did he have, I know I'm asking a couple questions here, but he, did he make a conscious decision? You know, the casting of Christopher Walken in the film, Biloxi Blues, it just makes it so wildly different from the Broadway version. But I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about his relationship with Neil Simon. Yeah, I think it was complicated. I mean, it, it, it starts very well because yeah. um, Mike's, Mike's big breakthrough directing Barefoot in the Park on Broadway is also Neil Simon's big breakthrough. You know, that was a huge hit. It ran for four years on Broadway. And they go right from that to The Odd Couple. Um, and Mike wins back-to-back uh, -to -back Tonys uh, as, as best director uh, for, for those two pieces. Um, and, and then he goes on to direct Plaza Suite and um, The Prisoner of Second Avenue. And it gets complicated because I think that, um, you know, they both had big egos and Mike actually took a, a big share of the, the profits. I mean, he, he got, he got more of, of a percentage than most Broadway play directors of the time did because of everything he was bringing to those plays. And I think um, Neil Simon eventually started to resent the kind of critical consensus that Mike was saving those plays as right. much as he was directing them. And then, and, you know, and then I they had, I'm, I'm, go sorry, go ahead. So sorry. I, I should show no, no. more, but I was going to say that there's also this convention that, you know, the theater is right. I mean, I'm, I'm not a stage actor, but the theater is a writer's medium, the playwrights medium, whereas film is the director's. I mean, so maybe there's also this, this is my train, uh, Mike, you know, I, I think so, but at the same time, I mean, Elizabeth Ashley said this amazing thing to me. She was the star of uh, Barefoot in the Park, and and she said, I don't think Neil Simon ever fully forgave Mike for everything he did for him, which is kind of a beautiful summary of the the tension between gratitude and resentment in, in that relationship. And then things were really pretty rough between them by the time that, you know, Mike never wanted to direct the movie version of a play that he had directed on stage. And so things were pretty rough between them by the time he makes this movie Bogart slept here, which is the movie that he fires De Niro from. And then the whole movie falls apart and shuts down completely. Um, that was a Neil Simon script and, and he and Mike were not seeing eye to eye when, when, they were directing that, but they reconciled. And, and then, yeah, Mike, um, Ileana, as you mentioned, he, he directs the movie version of Biloxi Blues, which is a play that he did not direct on Broadway. And by that one piece of casting, by replacing Bill Sadler with Christopher Walken, who uh, is the drill sergeant of, of this young, very green platoon, he changes the entire uh, mood and dynamic of the movie because every other performance has to change in response to yeah. Christopher Walken's weird, scary, low-key version of a drill sergeant as opposed to Bill Sadler's really like yelling top volume sort of more classical drill sergeant that, that was the case on stage. And how did Matthew Broderick feel about that? I think he, at least in his account to me, he was quite happy about it because uh, it 
it made him feel like he was not going to just be re-delivering the performance that he had given on stage and, you know, given on stage, what, probably a couple of hundred times, Um, you know, that, that, that for him, it made the movie something new, you know, that, that movie, Biloxi Blues was the first movie that, that Nichols directed after um, a pretty serious uh, breakdown that he had, um, which was caused by, uh, halcyon addiction in the mid eighties. And I'm, I'm always really touched, like in talking to all of the actors on that movie who were generally very, very young, cause it's a movie about, you know, a young platoon of, of new GIs. Um, everyone sort of said that Mike was not only kind of fatherly to the entire troop of actors, but became the director that each of them needed to be in turn, that he was insistent with one and cajoling with another and tough with a third and friendly with a fourth. Like that was a really impressive side of, of him that, that he could look at any individual actor and know what that person needed in order to give their best performance. The uh, and then his third that sort of is the beginning of his kind of the, the third act, too. I mean, we're skipping over Silkwood, which is one of my favorite movies. That's like I love it too. it's so it's such a stripped down film and almost harkens back a little bit to Virginia Woolf, not in the subject matter, but because it's so stripped down. You know, it's just the relationship of these, you know, these three individuals. Well, I think it was the movie that got him back in love with making movies after eight years of not doing it. It was the first time he worked with Meryl Streep, um, the first time he worked with Nora Ephron, and um, it kind of changed his, it's the movie on which he changed his whole approach to his career in a way, because it 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 was like Mike abandoning the, I'm going to be a visionary stylist part of his wow. career, and and saying, you know, what's really important to me is um, working with people I believe in on something that I think is great, whether that's an actor or a screenwriter or the subject matter. That's when Mike stopped caring about like any question of like, well, how is this going to fit with the previous things I've done? Um, And it allowed him to jump from genre to genre and from style to style and from theater to movies and back again, as long as he really believed in the project, really believed in the people and cared about what he was doing, that was enough for him. And Silkwood, I think is where that started. Yeah. Incredible film. And I love all the anecdotes from, from Silkwood too. It's terrific from, you know, I like Meryl Streep showing up with her dyed hair and, Right, cutting her hair off and then well also this this was a world like you know when you think of mike movies i i think of like the upper east side or something or a really nice restaurant i don't i don't think of texas you know so so him going down there and learning about you know plutonium processing plants and and like that um you know it's one of many times that he um extended himself uh in a new direction because there's nothing sort of brittle or caustic or or urbane about silkwood it's just really human people interacting with each other living in this kind of ramshackle 
house and eventually going toward this awakening that is also a tragedy. Like, if you know that it's a Mike Nichols movie, you can definitely understand it in the context of his career, especially in in the moments he finds and the way he works with actors and, and, and what he gets out of them. But I think if you didn't know that Silkwood was made by Mike Nichols, I don't know that anybody would ever guess, you know? Oh, I remember when it came out, you know, it's like the stylish version of a Martin Ritt movie, you know? It's just yeah, like, that's a perfect, like Martin Ritt. That's exactly right. That's exactly who Norma Ray, was that one is? Or? Yeah. 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 yeah, it was of that period. Gritty, you know, but yeah. still, but beautiful and with beautiful motifs of their house, you know, uh, it, it, Meryl Streep, even even with the dark hair and the look, you still she's she still looks beautiful. She's still engaging. It's not an ugly film. People aren't. Oh sure, no, you know. So it's still it's got some style, but it's bare bones. No, I, I for me it's actually one of my obviously aside from The Graduate, it's one of my favorite films of his. For for me too, and I was interested to read the reviews because you know it got a bunch of. Oscar nominations, um, but it didn't get a Best Picture nomination. And when you read the reviews, they're pretty admiring. Mm-hmm. But there's this little undertone of like, I mean, this is good. I don't know what it is, and I don't know why Mike Nichols is directing it, but it's good. But there's definite bewilderment as to like, well, what's what's this all about? Who is he now? You know, right. I think because it comes in the time of Meryl Streep's career where every movie she was a chameleon and doing something completely different and so that was her brunette film as opposed to concentrating on Mike Nichols as you know as as much right I mean she's coming off right off of um the French Lieutenant's Woman and then Sophie's Choice so so absolutely it was taken as like the next installment of the the Meryl Streep story <laughs> yeah she wanted to do something light uh, after that <laughs> other work um you you've mentioned a number of people who you talked with so obviously you talked to many many what were <laughs> what was the general sense um in reflection from the majority of people you spoke to about Mike um and was there anybody you couldn't just for fun was there anybody you couldn't get that you tried or <laughs> Uh, well, two part question. Okay, so for first part, um, I don't know that there was a general sense because um, you know I talked to about two hundred and fifty people, and every like some people knew him for decades. Some people had worked with him for a couple of weeks on one movie, or or you know had worked on one play. So I just wanted, I, I just wanted everybody to give their own part of the picture rather than have them. Um, try to say what he was really like and and Mm. some of them were were, a lot of them were like i'm so happy to get a chance to tell you about what he meant to me and how great he was and some of them were like i i I really want to explain to you that he was awful to me and here are the details of it um i think at the very beginning when i was working on it maybe the first set of people i interviewed were a little reluctant to say anything negative because he had died so recently that it almost felt like it, it to them it felt impolite but but it took me so long to do the book that that wore off eventually um and to the second part of your question yes there were absolutely 
people like couldn't get. I mean, you know, I guess um, it. If I were to pick a big name who I wish I could have talked to about Mike, uh, probably the one that stands out is Jack Nicholson. Um, you know, they worked together a number of times, and I would love to have asked him about. Um, carnal knowledge and about wolf and about the fortune and you know there's a lot to ask him about but um uh and replacing uh mandy patenkin right but uh, you know he he had he has not done interviews about his work in a very long time now um and uh, there's a lot i can do and a lot i have done to convert a no into a yes um but but you also have to know when you're just not going to get someone and, and so my feeling is always when that happens because it happened on my first book too you know you just you have to you have to work a little harder to honor those people and to make sure that you're not penalizing them or their experience by just by virtue of the fact that they weren't available to talk to you or weren't interested in talking to you because um because that happens and and happily a lot of the people that 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 happens to in this case are famous and so gave interviews along the way and and have had have talked because you know i was also dealing with largely a very elderly pool of people like the the people the number of people i interviewed between the ages of 80 and literally 105 i mean that that was literally the 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 upper the upper limit and it was much more of a challenge to make sure that I got to those people and to uh I mean mostly their memories were fantastic and they were incredibly generous but you know to draw them out to 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 let them tell their story their way to listen to what they were saying and try to ask follow-up questions that would mean something to them that was a much bigger thing for me than not being able to get someone ultimately your doesn't define your book, you know. Did you? I wanted to ask you a process question because it, inherently, the problem with a biography is always the it's fun to write the upswing and then you get to the plateau and then you go down. And how do you not? Do you find yourself midway through the book reminding yourself, okay? this is where we're going to have failure after failure. And then we got a big, great big comeback at the very end of his life. Is that something as a writer you faced or were thinking about at all? Um, I was less worried about writing about failures, which I think are actually really interesting to write about and really illuminating. than I was worried about just sort of hitting a dead patch, you know, something there's no failure. There's not a success. There's nothing much going on every, you know, that, I mean, that was a big fear I had from the time I went into the book, which is that you are at the mercy of the events of someone's life and lives aren't, lives aren't neatly shaped orderly narratives um, that are designed for book writers to exploit. So, so, I just felt like my job was to, you know, 
understand why things happened in the order in which they happened. And I thought if I could do that, maybe I won't, maybe I wouldn't hit a boring part, you know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't hit just a long dead patch. And I don't, I don't feel that I did. I mean, my, my sort of plan B, my, my, my backup solution in case I did would have been, I think, to accelerate through certain years more quickly than others. And obviously, you know, the making of, um, I don't know, regarding Henry is not going to be as interesting as the making of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but the making of, Catch twenty two might be, you know, because because even though that's not a movie um, people really know well, there's a ton to say about it. So sure. So if Orson Welles had been in uh, regarding Henry, it would have been a longer chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, the thing I was more scared about, honestly, was um, how how much would I be able to write about theater? Because with movies success or failure at least i'm writing about something that if you're curious about it you can go check it out but mike's theater career was really important and and really important in understanding him as a person and a director and so i thought god i i hope i don't end up writing a book where people just um skip this the pages with the stage productions to get to the next movie so so like the big challenge for me was writing about things like the odd couple and spam a lot compellingly enough so that even if you didn't see them or couldn't see them, you'd still feel like you were being held by the, the storytelling and, and the people involved. Cause happily, you know, there were usually interesting people involved in those, in those shows. I thought it was, you know, like when you mentioned regarding Henry, it was, you know, it was a reminder of, oh yeah, that movie and then Working Girl. And then, you know, he meets Harrison Ford and it is like, a, his life is like a cocktail party where people that he has met resurface or he comes up with another project for them. And- yeah. And it's interesting how many um, people to the very end of his career wanted to work with him uh, a second time. I mean, Natalie Portman worked with him twice, both when he was, you know, very, very well on in years. Julia Roberts uh, worked with him twice on his second to last movie and his last movie. So, yeah. And the Tom Hanks comes up in primary color. That was a fun part in the book. So Tom right. Hanks comes up as maybe being in primary colors. He's not in primary colors. And then Charlie they, Wilson but I, Ward. but he's going to be in uh, Charlie, Charlie Wilson's Wilson. War. So it, it, the people do, do stay in his head. He and you write in the book. He had an amazing casting sense. Oh yeah, and then even after Charlie Wilson's War, um, he's which was not necessarily the easiest experience between him and Tom Hanks. Mike is like, let's do our town together on Broadway. You play the stage manager. I'll direct it. Um, so <laughs> right. he he loved working with people more than once. I mean, you know, to his dying week, he was um, planning a movie uh, that Meryl Streep would, would star in, you know, and that was 32 or 33 years after the first time uh, they worked together. I mean, if he thought you were talented, if he thought you were great, he wanted to work with you forever. Yeah. 
I was just going to uh, mention uh, Spam a lot, which mm-hmm. I loved. I, love I, I saw it three times. Oh, wow. Broadway. Did you have a, uh, Mark, did you have a favorite? Uh, you know, obviously I didn't see his early. I saw all of his later Broadway plays. And I actually did see Waiting for Godot. So I was, I love that part of the book. Wow. I got to see, because I worked for this publicist named uh, Peggy Siegel. So we would always get tickets for things. Oh my gosh, I didn't know you worked for Peggy Siegel. That's amazing. Yes, yeah. and we represented yeah, Good Morning yeah. Vietnam. And uh, I got a ticket to see that show, which was very weird. Good going. <laughs> it's like, did you, but did you see that? That was one of those Broadway oddities. No, you know, it was, um, it was preserved on film uh, at the Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center. So when I was researching the book, I got to see that, but I did not, I was not one of the sort of lottery winners who who got to see that. I did get to see a lot of his stage work, but not that. That one hurt. I I saw that. I spam a lot. I saw about three times, which I loved spam a lot. You said you were also, we we, we both talked out, we both got to see... um, Early Burley. Early Burley on yeah. at the the off Broadway version, at yeah. The Promenade, yeah. right? And actually, Promenade. Saw yeah. the Country Wife with uh, Francis McDormand and Morgan Freeman. Uh, yeah, the when it, when Hurley Burley was at the Promenade, I was working uh, behind the counter at a greeting card store that was on the other side of Broadway. Um, wow! And Did Harvey Keitel so- tried to pick you up too. Because <laughs> apparently, no, I think I was not to his taste, um, but. But I do remember um, really wanting to see it and sort of saving my money that, that summer to see it. And I remember Judith Ivy coming into the store to buy like party favors and stuff for Sigourney Weaver's baby shower. Um, wow. So I felt very she glamour adjacent, you. you know. She mentioned that to you? She, she did. She said, oh, I'm because I recognized her and I said, oh, I, I'm excited to see your play. And she's like, oh, I'm buying you know, uh, party hats for Sigourney's baby shower. I felt very, you know, right, right next door to something really cool. (laughs) I remember that play. Believe me, that was our 1984. It was at the neighborhood playhouse. Wow. That was like back when things were now, you know, one funny thing I have to mention, just because it's one of these oddities, I'm going to go to my grave. But I was in the audience of watching a preview of The Country Girl, and I was sitting next to the actor Judd Hirsch, Mm -hmm. and I was watching the play, and all of a sudden, I didn't know Judd Hirsch at all, and very loudly, while a scene was going on, Judd Hirsch went, oh, Mike, Mike, Mike. Wow. (laughs) And I... What did he mean by that? What do you think he meant by that? What was he saying? um, How? Well, I think that that was kind of the general reaction to the country girl. You know, it's there's a lot of the you know hand on forehead and and moaning about it. But but I'd love to know what specifically he was reacting to. I don't know because I thought, is it some crutch? I didn't think it was so much a reaction to the play. But Nichols leaning potentially on some, you know, crutch that he a go to or something like that. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest because it's one of those bizarre things where you the rest you go. What did Judd Hirsch mean when he said? 
Uh, now I wish that had been my 251st interview. I mean, there, there, <laughs> were, there were like a hundred more people I could have talked to. I, I really, you know, I stopped because I had to start writing. But did, uh, did you ever think what would Mike Nichols think of the book? Oh, great question. Daily, hourly. I mean, I, I had to really work during the research, honestly, but also during the writing to get him out of my head or, or <laughs> away from, you know, over my shoulder uh, looking, looking at what I was writing and saying, well, that's almost right, but not quite, you know, Funny. I, I, you, it would just paralyze me if I, if I let that, you know, I, I hope that, right. I hope that he would like it. Cause I know that he liked, I, I, it's as honest a book as I knew how to write. And I hope he would appreciate that. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I'm sort of sorry that he, I, I my, my fantasy is that he could annotate it, you know, he, he, oh, yeah, right. but you could yeah. get the, the Mike version of, of my book where, where he sets right the, in, writes in the margins. Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the director's cut. I feel he would approve. I was saying at the top, so like too. just the cover alone is so Mike Nichols, you know, the lettering, the, the graphics, the photograph, everything is. Yeah. It's a rich, it's a Richard Avedon photograph. He was one of Mike's um, closest friends and and i i i can say this because i had nothing to do with the design of it i think the book is a beautiful object i really i love the way it looks so so i know mike would have liked that yes and i brought this out in in honor of avenon oh nice wow amazing and i just happened to since we're doing show and tell for a moment i I was (laughs) i was i just happened to pick up this the other day and i coincidentally the shampoo yeah and I noticed that I was looking at the extras and I noticed that you do a conversation about shampoo. People should check it out with uh, Frank Rich. I thought that was, and it was very, it was great. I, I, it was great to see you at work. So I kind of can anticipate having not met you before today. That's so right. Yeah. Well, that, that was really fun to do. It's always like cool to do something. He had a sparkle in his eye talking to, to you the whole time, Frank Rich, you know, he really, I, well, he, he, he was a delight. He's so smart. And so, so yeah. interesting. I wish I, um, I had I I need to have something to show you here. You want to see my <laughs> here, here's my masks. Ooh, that's me. Right. Oh, yeah. I bet you've never seen those before. <laughs> um, you want to do a uh, before we call it a day here? Do you want to just do a uh, uh, a uh, news breaking? Uh, maybe you can tell us what you're thinking of doing next. Oh, I wish I had something to tell you, but I'm I'm genuinely not sure. I mean, I've been working on ideas for two different book proposals and uh, i'm hoping that um two of them both of them will come together or one of them will come together or um or maybe neither of them will but but one of them will lead me to something good i can't wait to get started on something else i don't think it will be a biography but i'm not sure well i hope you get to do some in store over the next few months as things open up i hope you get to do some live things with the book yeah it's i i wish i could too although it's been really fun doing a a virtual tour you know i'm getting to sort of quote unquote go to places that i would never actually be sent so so i can't i can't complain about it and and you know it's thank god for for zoom it's it's really helped me um get the word out uh to people about the book and and thank god for people like you who are interested in it Oh, so well, great. Like yes, I said, it's just both. for anyone who loves theater and particularly that era, you know, 
from the late fifties, you were saying, well, I wasn't alive. I wasn't alive in the late fifties either. I just want to be alive for those people who wanted to be um, watching Elaine May and, you know, Mike Nichol. I mean, just that whole era. Or, or my case, Art Carney and, and Walter Matthau on stage. Now it's garbage. (laughs) Poor Art Carney. He ended up in Connecticut. I know. I wish I could have seen that, but you know, I, I, you have to guess what that was like. That's true. Yeah, um, it's published by uh, Penguin, uh, Press. Penguin Press, of course. Penguin Press. Uh, it's called Mike Nichols of Life. Thank you for all you, the time you've given us. We'll do it again, again soon. Thank you we'll so much. A, of course, we'll find another reason to do this again soon. All right, great. Yeah. Thanks again for doing this. It's really so nice of you. Um, thank you so much. Pleasure meeting you. Thank maybe you for respecting. We'll meet in real life. Likewise, maybe in a theater aisle or something when we get to do that right. again. Now I'm you really, can, I can left we... LA. I'm, I moved to Connecticut. And I can't wait to see this. That's another thing, too. Boy, does it whet your appetite for wanting to see a Broadway play. Now you can tell them your other Mike Nichols. Well, we both have Mike Nichols. We both met Mike Nichols at very time, various times. I mean, you know, no. <laughs> okay. It's during the country. Sorry to put you on this. Sorry to put you on this. It Fine. was not in, it was it was during the the country wife. Oh, okay. rough, that's rough a rough period. The rough period. Yeah, you know, it's like you ever you know, he was not not happy and you have a photograph in the book too. And I said, oh "My god, that's exactly what he was wearing." <laughs> it was I a have a bomber jacket. I have the my mind was a very on a happier note because he had just done this Q and A with Stanley Donan, and um, I was sitting right up front center because I wasn't going to miss out on that. They showed charade or not, probably not charade, but it's one of Stanley's films. And and then you know he's of course living with Elaine May, right? There, <laughs> she was there, and I snuck a photo. I was just telling Ileana that they were talking afterwards together, standing there, and I'm just like. Uh, what's on my phone here? Boop. <laughs> I oh, got wow. my Elaine May, Mike Nichols photo. And then afterwards he came out alone. I was standing in the, like outside the Walter Reed and he, I just, he walked out by himself and I got like my five minutes with, uh, with Mike Nichols and a photo. It's pretty special to have a little encounter with him. I mean, totally feel very lucky to have had that, um, yeah. you know, being such a huge fan. Anyway, all right, I got to go back to work. It was too much fun. Thank you so much. This was Thank a delight, you. and hope to meet you guys both in person soon. We will. We will okay. definitely. We'll make it happen. Thank All you right. so much. Take Bye. care. Bye, Adam. Bye. Okay, I'll talk, talk to you later. later. subscribe rate and review please go to uh, apple Podcasts or spotify however you listen stitcher and uh subscribe and uh, let people know that film wax exists and uh i would appreciate that very much and and the same goes for our youtube channel like i know i've been plugging this a lot but the truth of the matter is is that's a great thing to be able to watch uh a lot more of these interviews i i think th- doing stuff that very few other podcasters are doing so that's why i talk about it as much as i do 
thank you for 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 your support and um do take care of yourselves and the ones you love until next time this is adam Shartoff, film wax All of these lines across my face Tell you the story of who I am So many stories of where I've been And how I got to where I am But these stories don't mean anything When you got no to tell them to it's true I was made for you I've climbed across the mountain tops swam all across the ocean blue I've crossed all the lines and I broke all the rules but baby You do.